Hey y'all, and welcome to the Feasting on Truth podcast. I'm Erin Warren, and I'm so glad that you are here. We are in a study called Unexpected Savior. It's a study of the Gospel of Mark, and y'all, it has been such a feast. I will admit, I underestimated the beauty and the complexity of Mark's gospel. And y'all, goodness, every week I find myself digging deeper and and deeper and realizing that we are only scratching the surface. Before we get to Mark 6 today, though, I shared in the last episode about my new book coming out. It's called Everyday Prayers for Faith, Finding Confidence in God No Matter What. It's a 30-day devotional and prayer journal through the promises of God. Um, Our faith grows. Our confidence in God grows when we learn more about who He is and what He has promised. This devotional will help you see the character of God and how He is faithful to keep His promises. It releases on January 9th, 2024, and you can go to my website, feastingontruth.com slash faith to get some more information about it and to pre-order the book. And don't forget, if you pre-order the book, come back to feastingontruth.com faith and fill out the form so that you can get access to all the pre-order bonuses. All right, y'all, Mark 6, I will admit, part of this one completely stumped me, and it's a good reminder of why we do not study in isolation. Um, once I got over that hump though, y'all, wow, <laughs> this chapter, blew my mind. I know I've said it a lot, but I'm going to say it again. What a feast. Here's Mark chapter six. Hey y'all and welcome to week seven of Unexpected Savior, an inductive Bible study on the gospel of Mark. We have studied Mark one through five and tonight we come to Mark chapter six and I and uh, I'm really excited. And I'll, I will admit to y'all that this one, uh, there was an element of this that really stumped me this week and then I got completely wrong. <laughs> um, but um, I think that's so much a testimony of um, how kind the Lord is to continue to walk alongside us as we are studying scripture um, and as we are learning to do this um, and to go deeper. Um, this was a huge week for the unexpected savior, um, where we see not a military king, but a servant Messiah and a man of sorrows who comes. Um, and so before I dive in too deep, let me open us up in prayer. Oh, father, I just thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you for the words of Mark Lord. Um, what seems on the surface so simple Lord, is proving to be quite complex and so beautifully woven together. So, Lord, I pray that as we come to Mark 6 tonight, Lord, that you would um, just let your word go out. Lord, I just pray that it would um, uh, go out with truth and that it would fall on good soil. Lord, that it would take root and that we would see the goodness and um, the mercy and the grace and the satisfaction that lies in full surrender to you, Lord, um, that we would have humble hearts and teachable spirits, Lord, as we come to your word. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. So I do want to start just quickly with a little bit of review, um, just to kind of continue to remind us. So um, we'll remember that Mark is writing um, to a Gentile audience, which is um, not the norm within scripture. Um, And this, um, we saw in chapter one, kind of this 
introduction of this creation parallel, um, showing how Jesus is the more imperfect Adam, where Adam failed, Jesus um, prevailed um, as the second Adam. Um, and the first really eight chapters um, show, answer the question, who is Jesus? Um, and so we're going to see, we've seen throughout all of these chapters, how Mark has shown um, the authority of Jesus as a way of, of proving that he is God. And so we saw that in chapter two, um, the law, demons, sickness, um, Sabbath. In chapter three, he came to restore what was broken. Um, we saw this picture of healing on Sabbath. Um, he came to defeat Satan. That was our first Mark and Sandwich where um, we talked about how um, Jesus could not be bound, but he came to bind the strong man and to take back the captives to um, establish a new family um, and to free those who had been um, who had been enslaved to sin. And it's such good news for us. Chapter four really um, was the parable chapter. We had these parables about faith um, and this theme of, of God's word, the hearing um, of his word, the believing of his word, and then the, the bearing fruit, um, the obedience that bears fruit um, in that changed life. And so we've talked about kind of Mark's definition of faith, hear, believe, bear fruit. And we see um, that in chapter five, we had the, the man who had um, the legion of demons in him who is delivered. Um, he becomes the first kind of missionary sent out. He's one of the first to give, to be given permission to go and tell what Jesus had done. And we talked about how um, that was because um, it was to set the record straight. They would have in that region, that Gentile region would have believed he was a magician. And so um, this kind of more so um, points to the fact that Jesus is God. Um, and then we had um, one of the more obvious Mark and sandwiches here in Mark chapter five with um, Jairus's daughter and then the woman healed um, who had been bleeding for 12 years and then the raising of his daughter. And um, all of this really was kind of pointing to this incredible picture of Jesus as um, uh, this the high priest, the shadow of the things that were to come, that he was Yahweh Rapha, not um, the God who is necessarily after our whole bodies, but after our whole hearts. And so that's kind of the background as we come into chapter six. And as I said, this one, um, it really is a huge week for the theme of unexpected savior. Um, Jesus is beginning his third preaching tour. And most of what we see here in this section of scripture is on the Northwest shore of the sea of Galilee. And what we're going to do is we're going to see him begin to empower his disciples to go out, preparing them for what is about to come. Um, but I think one of the big things that I saw this week in this passage was the different responses to Jesus and the confusion over who Jesus is. So if you'll remember in Matthew and Mark 536, um, as Jairus is um, just learned that his daughter is, is dead, Jesus turns to me and says, do not fear, only believe. Um, and so we're going to kind of carry that theme through um, this um, uh, because what we see here in Mark chapter six is actually the opposite of what we saw 
in Mark chapter five. So let's dive in after all that. Uh, starting in verse one, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. This is, um, we've talked throughout the study about Mark kind of employing what um, this theme of irony, where what you would expect to happen isn't what happens. And um, very often that kind of plays in the insider-outsider motifs as well. But here we see one would expect that when he came home, you know, and I think about um, like a hometown hero welcome, you know, when there's a great, you know, football game. I can remember I went to University of Central Florida and there was the one year we had this amazing season. And of course they went and they went undefeated and they won a huge bowl game against an SEC team and it was huge. And so what did we do? They held a parade in their honor and everyone gathered and everyone was wearing their black and gold and everybody was cheering for their team that had returned home, that was victorious, that was doing great things and making a name for not only themselves, but for our city. And that's what you would expect when Jesus, son of God, Messiah, who's been doing these great and mighty works all over the region of Galilee, comes home. But that's not what happens. They, they, they're confused. They're like, but we know who this is. Um, Nazareth is kind of a backwoods small town. These people would have known Jesus growing up. They would have known um, and we kind of see that indicated by their markers. They're like, this is a carpenter who was Mary's son. And these are his brothers and his sisters. Where, like, why, where is all this coming from? And instead of being welcomed back and accepted and praised, when Jesus teaches in the synagogue, it says they took offense at him. Um, now, this word offense in Greek doesn't mean the same thing is our English word offended. Um, it means to put a snare in the way, hence to cause to stumble or give offense. It's a stumbling block. They, they, they saw Jesus and they, they stumbled over it. They couldn't get past the truth. They didn't understand. Um, James R. Edwards in his, um, as I have quoted often um, in the gospel according to Mark said, um, talking about this word offense says that it occurs eight times in the gospel of Mark. In each instance, it designates obstructions that prevent one from coming to faith and following Jesus, a stumbling block to faith. A signature motif of Mark is a grave problem. The offense of verse three verifies that the amazement of the people in Nazareth is not one of faith, but incredulity and opposition. Y'all, they are not able to come to faith because they can't get past 
their misunderstanding of who Jesus is. They can't see him for who he is. They hear the word, but they don't believe. Therefore, they have no faith. And because of that, there's no fruit. Um, he could do no mighty work. The Greek kind of reads, um, it's a little backwards. So it says he was able there to not do, to do not any work of power. It sounds a little like Yoda. Um, he was able there to do not any work of power. Jesus was not able to use his power there because of their offense at him. Um, because of their lack of faith, the IVP Bible background study Bible says that Jesus is unable to do works because of their unbelief presumes a limitation, not of his power, but of his mission to heal without morally directed faith would be to act like the pagan magicians of antiquity. Um, that this IVP Bible background study Bible is written by a man named Craig S. Keener. And so it's, he further points to this idea that Jesus is not there to merely impress people, um, but his goal is relationship. Jesus is marveling at their unbelief. He is astounded and amazed. It was a wonder to him. And I think this is an element of our savior that is a man of sorrows that, that, they missed it, that they're, that the Jesus from Nazareth, the one that they grew up with, was the one, the anointed one that God had sent for the salvation of the entire world, and they couldn't get over it. And because of their lack of faith, Jesus does nothing there. His, his mission is limited because he is not there um, to impress them. He is there to build relationship. And if he, they are not willing to build relationship, then he can do no mighty work. Um, again, we see the response to Jesus affects the work of Jesus. We saw that last week, both the woman and Jairus, that they both, um, they both had faith. And because of their faith, um, we were able to see the work that God was able, Jesus was able to do in their life. Um, when we recognize who Jesus is, when we surrender in faith to him, we invite Jesus to work in our lives. Without relationship, it's merely magic or an attempt to dazzle the audience. And that's not what Jesus is here for. Um, and so we kind of see... Um, as I said, we're kind of leading toward this space where Jesus is going to send out the 12. Um, and so we see this story, this, this picture of what it looks like to be inhospitable. And then we're going to see Jesus send out his disciples with, um, with notes about what to do in that situation, should it come up again. And so y'all, here we have are another mark and sandwich. Now this is our last mark and sandwich. I will go ahead and warn you uh, or go ahead and tease you until chapter 11. So after this week, you have a few chapters without a sandwich. Um, but verses seven through 30 are, um, are a, another mark and sandwich. So because of that, I'm gonna read that whole section verses seven through 30, and then we're gonna come back. And I wanna talk about it really at kind of a high level because um, it's really incredible what, what Mark is doing here. Um, verse Starting in verse seven, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. 
he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever um, you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it for Jesus. Jesus's name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why the miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, that's the wife, had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. You know, it's a really depressing, sad story. <laughs> um, so this is the part where I admit to you that I sat with this and I sat with this and I sat with this and I was trying to determine what the meaning. So again, with a Mark and Sandwich, it's where Jesus or yeah, where Mark starts a story interrupts it with another story and then comes back to the original story and picks it back up again. And so I, I really thought that it was more about the response to Jesus and who Jesus was, but I was wrong. So let's dive in so we can get to the real meaning of that. This is why, and this is what I want to say. This is why um, it's really important. I teach inductive Bible study so that you can approach scripture for yourself first it's firsthand study of God's word, but it is not solo study of God's word. Um, there are a lot of people who are way smarter than me who have done a ton, particularly when it comes to structure in scripture, a lot more research and understanding of um, original language and the way it was formatted. Again, remember, 
there were no chapter or verse markers originally. And so we've kind of done our best to kind of break some things down. But um, this is why I think trusted commentaries are really important because they help confirm what the Holy Spirit um, has said. They help us get unstuck and they help set us straight when maybe we aren't going down the right path in scripture. Um, but what we want to do is to sit with it first, to wrestle it first, to invite the Holy Spirit in and to go, okay, teach me here. Let me see. And then when we go, we need to be humble and teachable so that if we go and we read again, stay away from random blogs. I'm talking about trusted vetted commentaries. And those are always, um, I keep an updated list on um, feastingontruth.com slash resources um, to kind of help you um, get unstuck or to make sure that you're on the right track. And then we need to have those humble and teachable spirits to go, okay, I messed up. And so this week it was one of those where I was like, man, I really thought I had this. Okay. So we have the first part. Jesus is beginning to empower his disciples for the work of the ministry. Y'all, they're carrying his word. He gave them authority. Authority only comes from one who has authority to give. And so that's why it's so important that we have been throughout the first five chapters and even here showing Jesus's authority as God, because only God has the ability to then give authority to his apostles. Um, and there's a lot of detail culturally in there about what they took and what they didn't take. Um, just a couple um, going two by two provided protection. It also provided a witness or confirmation of the message. Um, a staff would have been used for protection. Um, it's possible that the bag that he said, don't take a bag is because it was synonymous with begging. And so they basically are only taking what they need for protection and for confirmation and everything else. They are trusting in the Lord and their host to provide for them. And so it was customary that they would go and stay in a house and they would stay there until it was time to depart. So it's not like they were house hopping. Um, and then he says, if people were not hospitable, if they do not listen. So again, we hear this, this continued theme of hearing the word, if they will not listen, if they do not have ears to hear, then shake the dust off your feet. Hospitality was a very high value in their culture. Um, and it was hospitable to give your guests water to be able to wash their feet, okay? Dusty, dirty roads, sandals, feet were disgusting. And so, and particularly the way that you would sit at a table, your feet would be near the food. It's disgusting, y'all. So it was customary to wash your hands and, or, and to wash your feet. So if they have dust on their feet, to shake dust off your feet, you have to have dust on your feet. And to have dust on your feet, you have to have been treated inhospitably, meaning that no one um, took you in and gave you something to wash your feet with. Um, we actually saw this in one of our cross-references, kind of a similar theme in Acts 18, 5 through 6, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, um, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, um, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. And from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So we see that same theme of when the word is not heard and believed, but it is opposed, then, um, and we saw Jesus do that with um, 
with the town of Nazareth where he said, I can do nothing here. And so he left. Um, so um, they go out and they preach that the people should repent. And that should have triggered some similar language to our theme verse um, in Mark 1, 14 through 15, where Jesus, and this is also kind of a tie back. So we're tying not only Jesus's mission, but the timing with John the Baptist. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so Jesus has come in saying, repent and believe. And so now he is sending out his apostles and saying, tell them to repent and believe. Um, and so they are doing exactly as Jesus has done. And then right in the middle of the story, we kind of <laughs> whiplash to another story. Um right in the middle. And this is a non-chronological story. So, so it starts kind of saying, here's what all these different people think of Jesus. And even Herod hears it and goes, oh, John the Baptist has come back to life. And then we have this insertion of the story of how John the Baptist was killed. Um, and um, so as his apostles go out um, and preach, um, and as word is spreading about who Jesus is, people continue to question. And this is why I really thought that was what this was about. But, um, there's some interesting language here. Herod feared John. He kept him safe. He knew that he was righteous and holy. He was perplexed by him, but he also heard him gladly. So again, we hear another, the word going out and hearing the word. Um, but this awful thing happens and he gets kind of trapped, um, in this situation, um, partially with his own sin and well, mostly all completely by his own pride and his own sin. And, um, in the end, um, is, uh, quite the grotesque ending to his birthday party. Um, and then Mark quickly jumps back with the apostles return. So one thing I do want to point out, and this is what's really fascinating, is if you look, if you're reading at the beginning of the chapter, Mark's using the word disciples, but then in this section, he uses the word apostles. Apostle means one who is sent. And so um, he is literally naming them what they are called to do. They've been sent. And so we have this sending and returning with um, the middle being the death of the messenger who came before Jesus. And so the main purpose of this is to show us the cost of following Jesus. And I want us to remember, again, this is why context is so important. If um, Mark is writing this, um, when most scholars believe around 64 AD, this is an intense time of persecution for Christians. Um, and so he is reminding them that there is a cost to follow Jesus. Um, at this point, um, as far as we know, um, there is only one of the disciples who has already been martyred. So James, the John's brother, one of the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder was killed in 44 AD. Um, if uh, Paul and Peter are both martyred around the time that the book of Mark is written. Um, 
And so it is very fresh in the reader's minds of, of what the risk is in following Jesus. Um, there is a cost, but y'all, there is a cost, but the abundance of what awaits us in relationship with our God um, we're going to see in the next story, the most beautiful example. And it's one of my favorite <laughs> stories, one of my favorite miracles of Jesus. Um, it is the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. So they've returned. They've reported to Jesus. Here's everything that happened. And he says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore and saw a great crowd, uh, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a de desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set out before the people. And he divided the two fish among them and they were um, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 basketfuls full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5000 men. Now, there's probably about a hundred different sermons we could preach on this passage. So I want to focus, though, kind of at a higher level um, and, and something that we really see in the juxtaposition of the stories within the Gospel of Mark. So again, um, this has been an intense period of ministry time for the apostles, for the disciples. They have gone out and as they come back, they're weary. They haven't even had time to eat. And so Jesus says, look, come and rest with me. Um, and uh, so I want you to remember that they didn't even have time to eat. Okay. Um, and this is where we're going to, this is where we are starting to see that the fame of Jesus is spreading. So we are getting closer and closer to the time where he will begin moving toward Jerusalem and it um, being the, the end of his ministry, the time is almost here. And so his fame is spreading um, and the great crowds, they see him go and y'all, they run around the lake on foot to get there ahead of him, um, which is just crazy. Um, the cultural context really gave me a different picture than what I had really thought before. Um, and so I want us to remain kind of focused on Mark's details. Um, this 
miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is found in all four gospels. Um, and so I will tell you that I love John's account. And so while I have pressed us to really focus on Mark, there are a few things that um, I do want us to cross-reference in John's in John's account, because it does give us a clearer picture of what's going on here. Um, so there's some clues within um, within the story that um, I used to think this was like 5,000 men and all these women and children coming and, and, and wanting, just hungry for Jesus and like wanting to hear everything that Jesus had to say and, and all of this. And so, um, you know, and sitting on this lush green uh, side of the hill by the lake and, and eating to their heart's content, like this beautiful ethereal kind of picture. Um, but here's what's really fascinating is that um, these were not, and the, the, the fact that he mentioned, they mentioned the men is one of the things that kind of points us to this idea that these people were not here because they wanted Jesus and they wanted to hear from him. They were there because they wanted to make him their king. Um, it, he, they wanted their, their military savior um, and they wanted help to overthrow Rome. That was what was expected by the Jewish people. Um, and so some of this context is coming from commentary. Some of it's coming from cross-references. Um, James R. Edwards points in the Gospel According to Mark points to the fact that this area was a central location of zealot activity in the first century. That the rebellion against Rome, a lot of it was born within this region where he is. Um, and we know from John in um, 6 verses 14 and 15, he says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they were looking for this military leader that was going to come in and become king, that was going to overthrow Rome and um, reestablish the kingdom of Israel here on earth. But that was what they expected, but that's not the, who Jesus was. And we see this beautiful picture um, when it says he got out of the boat, they were like sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them. Compassion was one of our words that we looked up. And this is always one of my classic go-to examples for why we look up words in the English dictionary, because a lot of times we think of compassion as kind of kindness, but, um, or being nice or, um, you know, but compassion is sympathetic consciousness of others distress together with a desire to alleviate it. So it's not just this sympathy toward people. Um, it's a sympathy that moves toward action. It's seeing the distress of the people and then wanting to alleviate it. And so Jesus steps off this boat and he sees these people who are without a leader, who are without a shepherd. Um, they were hungry for somebody to lead them. Um, and Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10, it's kind of an indictment against the shepherds of Israel. Um, in verse 2b through 3, it says, uh, God says to them, ah, shepherds of Israel, 
who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. These people are hungry. They've been starved and deprived of truth. They've been misled. Um, they have not been led well. And here they are wanting something that is not what Jesus actually came to offer. And so what does he do? It says he teaches them. He teaches them truth. And he, and he begins to shepherd those people. Um, he is a different kind of shepherd. Isaiah 40 verse 11 says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He is a tender and kind, compassionate shepherd. One who, who leads and feeds his sheep well. And we see this theme of shepherds and sheep all throughout scripture. And again, I could probably teach so many different lessons on, on those themes and threads throughout scripture. Um, but we see Jesus have compassion and we see him teach. And then we see him literally his sheep. Um, it is late. They are in a desolate place. So they are away from towns they're away from civilization um too far to go get food and bring it back there's far too many of them for them to even be able to go to a town and that town have enough to actually provide for these people um and so there's this cute funny exchange he's like well you guys feed them um so hang on to that thought for a second and they're like we don't have anything okay we've got this okay jesus gives Thanks. He has them sit down. Y'all, did you see what he sat down on? They sat down on green grass. That is actually why I chose the color for the cover of the book um, as green is because of this verse. Um, Mark is the only one who mentions green grass. Um, this is an indication um, that is most likely springtime. Um, but I will tell you, I have a, a dear friend, my friend, Linda, who um, I talk about often in Bible study because she just, she would catch these little things and the way she would, with such wonder, respond. She's like, they're in a desolate place. And then they just suddenly are sitting on green grass. Like it's pure speculation, but I can't wait to get to heaven and go, was it really springtime or did you just make grass spring up for these people? Um and everyone ate and was satisfied. Um, satisfied was one of our other words that we looked up. It means pleased or content with what has been experienced or received. Um, it means paid in full. And so I want us, even though, you know, it's kind of like the debt has been satisfied, um, the, um, or what was owed had been satisfied. But I love that idea of fullness because the Greek word means to feed, fatten, fill, and satisfy. Y'all, it's related to the word gorge. These people didn't just have a light snack. They didn't just have enough to tide them over to get back home. They were full. There was no emptiness in their bellies. They gorged themselves. They ate as much as they possibly could. Y'all, the multiplication here of the bread reminds us of God providing the 
ample manna in the wilderness in Exodus 16. And y'all, there's so many parallels and I don't have time to go into them all. But y'all, what a difference we see between the party at Herod's, the meal at Herod's, and the meal that Jesus provides. The type of leader that Herod is, the type of leader that Jesus is. We see Jesus literally being the more and better Moses as he takes his people into the wilderness and he shepherds them and he feeds them. Um, John 6 really gives an incredible picture of that comparison, particularly around the manna and Jesus being the more and better manna, the more and that's where we actually find the phrase where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. It's one of my favorite passages to teach on. And I think it's one of the most powerful pictures of Jesus. So if you have time, um, I would spend some time just reading through John 6, just because it's so incredible. We see that he is a different kind of shepherd. And this is so reminiscent. Listen to the parallels, y'all. Psalm 23, one through three, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Some versions say I lack nothing, um, that he is everything we need. He makes us full. He makes me lie down in what? Green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He teaches them. He leads them in righteousness. Joel 2.26 says, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. We see this abundance. Um, Psalm 23 goes on talking about the table and the anointing of my head with oil and the cup overflowing, the abundance that is at the table. And we see the abundance literally in 12 baskets. So if you'll remember the number 12 kind of points us to this idea of God's authority and his kingdom. Y'all, that is what awaits us in the kingdom of God. Y'all, the cost of following Jesus is great, but he is the one who satisfies, that provides an abundance. We see this literal picture of God's word going out and returning a hundredfold. Um, and here's what's really cool, y'all. He did it through the disciples. That they came back and then he says, well, you guys give them something to eat. And then what does Jesus do? He provides food for them to then give to the people. He is doing his work through his disciples. It is not their own doing, but the doing for, um, of Jesus. He is the good shepherd who provides for his sheep, cares for his sheep, teaches his sheep, and satisfies his sheep. Um, and so um, we've got two more stories. So I'm going to go through this kind of quick. He immediately made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone in, on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when he saw him walking, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So immediately Jesus puts his disciples on the boat 
with 12 baskets of leftovers, he dismisses the crowd and then he goes up the mountain to pray. Um, remember we talked about being surrounded by cliffs. And so he goes up where he can look over and see um, and see the them in the boat. Remember we talked about it's a very small lake. And so he can see them. They're struggling against the wind. It's during the fourth watch. So this is one of those clues that lets us know that it's written to a Gentile audience. Um, because the fourth watch is between three and six a.m., and that was Roman, not Jewish. Um, they the Jewish had different hours for watches, um, so they are struggling against the wind. The Greek word is literally torture or a tormenting trial, and so Jesus walks on the water to them, and we're going to see three very powerful pictures of who Jesus is. Okay, so. I feel like Mark is kind of reaching this huge climax. So we've seen these, these smaller acts, like the authority over demons and the able to subdue the wild animals. And he's Lord of the Sabbath. And then we have this huge God moment right here. So there's this peculiar phrase here that says meant to pass them by. And so at first you were like, oh, was he just, was he not going to stop? But we have to remember again, um, there's things that we miss because we're reading in English and not the original language. So the original language is similar to the, to the language of God's presence passing by Moses in the cleft of the rock. And we see that in um, Exodus 33, 19 through 22. And again, in Exodus 34, six through seven, where it says the Lord passed before him and he proclaimed his name to him. Um, and then he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And so it's reminiscent of that idea of the glory of God passing before them. So that's the first one. The second one, he's walking on water. Y'all, that's something only God could do. Um, Job in the section um, where he is talking about the greatness of, of God in chapter nine, in verse eight, he says, who alone stretches out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Um, it was understood that only God, that God could walk on water. And so the fact that Jesus, the glory of God is passing them by on like walking on the water. And again, um, if you'll remember that there was um, fear of water and there was thought to be demonic connection between the storms um, and we saw that with the storm earlier that um, was leading toward um, when he, he was asleep in the boat. And he said, you know, basically muzzled the wind and everything, silence. Um, but he's literally standing on top of the thing that they feared. Um, and so that's the second one. And then the third one is that literally when he, when he says, do not fear, it is I. It is literally in the original language, I am. It is him saying that he is Yahweh, that he is God. He says, I am. Jesus is God. We do not need to be afraid. Y'all, no matter what tortures us or torments us or is causing difficulty for us in moving forward, um, I want you to know that he is in the boat with you. He is, I am. He's not a good prophet. He's not Elijah. He's not Elisha. He's not Moses or John the Baptist, but he is Jesus, the Messiah, the good shepherd, God himself in human skin. And the disciples are astounded. And Mark kind of um, 
uses this word about they they didn't understand because their hearts were hardened. So this is a different type of hardening than what we see um, in Exodus with Pharaoh. So where it talks about Pharaoh having a hardened heart, or even in the Old Testament with the Israelites having a hardened heart, this doesn't mean that they are hard and unaccepting of who Jesus is. Um, it relates more that they're slow to perceive. So remember, Mark is showing the disciples kind of grappling with who Jesus is because he's the unexpected savior. And so he is gradually showing them who he is and they are they are learning and as they walk with him, who he is and it will all come to light Um uh, after his death and resurrection. And then he ends um, with a few more verses. Um, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. That means they anchored the boat. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment as many had touched it and as many as touched it were made well. And so we see this continual reminder this that you hear, you believe, and there's fruit. Um, Again, he wouldn't do the mighty works for the sake of the mighty works. It is always in connection with faith. And that's not to say that faith means you will get healed or faith means that things will happen. Again, remember, he's after our whole hearts more than our whole bodies. And so, um, but it all starts with faith. Um, Mark's definition is that here, believe in fruit. And I want us to remember, like I said earlier, there were no chapter markers, there were no verse markers. And so it was all read at one time. And so y'all, I saw the most incredible picture of this and I'm gonna wrap up with this, I promise. But this was so good. Y'all, Mark 6 is literally the parable of the seeds laid out. Okay, follow me here. The seed on the path is Nazareth, the seed that is snatched away immediately. Um, Mark 4 15, they hear, but Satan immediately comes and takes away the word is, that is sown in them. Um, the seed that falls on the rocky ground is Herod. This is the, the seed that is received gladly. Remember it said he heard the word and he gladly accepted it, but it has no root. And um, in Mark 4, 16, it says, they are the ones who sown on rocky grounds. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. I'm so tongue twisted. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Okay. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. So hear that connection gladly and joy. But persecution arises on the account of the word, and immediately they fall away. Um, Herod heard John the Baptist gladly, and he protected him, and he feared him, and he knew that he was holy and righteous. But y'all, when it came down to it, he feared the people as party more than he feared the God of John the Baptist. And so he allowed the word to be scorched out of him. And he was exceedingly sorry, but because of the oaths of his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. So he chose the word of the world over the word of God. 
Um, and then the seed that is um, comes up among the thorns was the crowd. It's the seed that takes root, but the desires of the world choke it out. Um, and this one you see more clearly in John chapter six, but because there's a whole conversation that takes place the next day after this that really points clearly to the fact that these men were seeking what they wanted here on earth. Um, they were seeking bread for their stomachs, not the bread of life. They wanted the king, not the servant. They wanted what they could get from Jesus more than they wanted Jesus himself. Matthew Henry says, it is sad to think how much more most care about their bodies, meaning that they care more about the physical form than they do about their, their spiritual well-being. Uh, Matthew Henry calls it king's stomach, and we bow to it all the time, where we allow the desires of this world um, to, to overtake the, um, the goodness, the, um, what Jesus has to offer us. Um, so they, the word went out, they heard it, they followed it for a time, but the desires for riches, prestige, military victory, even food chokes out the truth of who Jesus is and what he offers us. And then the seed on the good soil is the disciples. The seed takes root and it flourishes and y'all, it produces not just fruit, but abundant fruit. Literally here in the story, 12 basketfuls, which represent the kingdom of God, the fullness of the kingdom of God. But y'all for the readers and for us, we are the abundant fruit of their ministry the word that was sown through the disciples that went out and it and it returned 30, 60, 100 fold over the course of 2000 years. And now we sit here as evidence of the fruit of faith of the disciples and of the other spiritual giants that we stand on the shoulders of. Y'all, um, we must be willing to surrender to Jesus in order to live under the power of Jesus. We cannot have his power without surrender. Y'all, many are lost, um, even the disciples, but he is our shepherd who has compassion. He leads us to green pastures and he provides abundantly for us more than physically, um, but spiritually. He is our satisfaction. He is over our fear. He is God who is sovereign over all of it. In Psalm 95, seven through nine, and this is, um, I'm just gonna close with this. He says, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to proof, though they had seen my work. It's a reference to the story in the wilderness when um, uh, the people put God to the test. And he's saying, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. The author of Hebrews quotes that section of Psalm 93. And then he says this in Hebrews 3, 12 through 19. Take care, brothers, lest there be any in of you, sorry, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those who, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness and to whom he swore that they would never enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Y'all, we cannot allow any root of sin, any root of lie to, to choke out the word of God. We have to encourage one another. That's why I love that you are part of this study because we get to encourage one another with the truth of the word so that points us continually toward faith and belief and fruit, not allowing the deceitfulness of sin to step in and to, to allow us to harden our hearts. Do not let unbelief take root. Encourage one another. Y'all, our life is going to be hard no matter what. Yes, there is a cost to following Jesus, but we have a choice because he offers us everything we need for life and godliness. In him, we lack nothing because his presence is with us, because he is the good shepherd, he provides for us. He is compassionate with us. He is by our side. He is in the boat, no matter what storm we are facing. He is the satisfaction that we so desperately need. Would you pray with me? Father, just thank you so much. God, we're so undeserving, and yet you still came, and you are so long-suffering and patient with us, Lord, that you walk alongside us, continually teaching us. Lord, um, thank you for being the compassionate shepherd, Lord, who um, provides us everything that we need, Lord, who leads us toward eternal life, who um, lets us <laughs> lie down on green pastures who restores our souls. Lord, I just pray for the woman whose soul needs to be restored. Lord, who needs um, to know that you are there with her. God, would your presence be made known to her? May she sense and feel you with her. May she see you before her and behind her and hemmed in by you. Lord, I just pray that you would help us remember that you are I am and that you came for us to make a way, Lord, not to dazzle us, not to impress us, but Lord, to, to build a relationship with us. Lord, we are yours, and it's in your name I pray. Amen. Goodness, y'all. There was so much to feast on this week. There were so many angles, so many parallels, so many threads. 
and I know that I didn't cover them all. Like I said, you could teach a hundred different ways on this one. And I know, y'all, I taught a long time, but His Word is an abundant feast, and that is why I love studying the Bible and gathering with other women to discuss it. Y'all, in our small group, so many other details came out in our discussion, like the fact that it was 5,000 men, meaning it was actually more if you counted women and children, that there was this juxtaposition of the disciples not recognizing Jesus, then immediately upon reaching shore, the people do recognize him. We see this theme of Sabbath and rest again, the restoration of rest. The fact that the disciples hadn't eaten and Jesus not only fed 5,000, he fed his disciples. The chapter started with the rejection of Jesus and no fruit and ends with faith that leads to fruit. Y'all, we will never be done studying scripture. The more we study it, the more we realize we don't know, the more we want to keep studying it. Let me challenge you. Please keep going. You can do it. It's worth it. He is worthy because in him and in his word lies everything we need. We feast and are satisfied. I want to close with Psalm 63, 1 through 8, because I just feel like it tied so well into um, Mark chapter 6 this week. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirst for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Amen. Y'all, next week we move to Mark 7, and it is one of the most powerful Man of Sorrows moments. This one gets me every time. I'll see y'all next week.